What's up and welcome back to Now Nostalgia Pod, giving you your weekly look with and pop culture. My name is Pat Sheehan, joined by my co-host, fresh off the West Coast, Dave Martin Swagger. Dave, how you doing, man? Doing good. Doing good. Rental car was a hybrid. I would recommend this strategy for everyone. Hybrid EV at that. So save on that gas, my friends. Good stuff. Very nice. Uh, was that an upcharge at the? Uh, no, box? sir. No, no wow. it was one of those like, I paid for the cheapest kind, and then it was like, here after point X, you can pick anything there. The key is in the vehicle, and that's what we did. It's like, yeah, oh, this is a uh, appealing. It also had like the very nice you know screen with the navigation. I was like, oh, could get used to this. Good stuff. <laughs> Dave, I would, I would tell you to shout out the uh, rental car dealership, but um, until they they sponsor us. Yeah, no, no free ads. Come on, no. But anyways, we uh we got a little bit of catching up to do. You know, we we predicted the Emmy, so we we obviously have to react to them. But we also had two hip hop albums that we wanted to talk about. We had uh, two TV shows that one that just wrapped up, another one that dropped over the weekend, and then a Clint Eastwood movie. Okay, <laughs> but let's start with the Emmys, and Dave. Did you watch the Emmys? No, I was away and on West Coast time. So I did not watch the Emmys. I would have if I had been around. But I obviously checked in on what happened and for the most part saw that our predictions were pretty good. Yeah, I mean, we, we, I, don't, I don't feel like we predicted anything too out there. You know, and, and that this year ended up being a lot of chalk, a lot of the same shows getting many awards which kind of makes for a bit of a boring night um but i think there were still some moments um maybe some some not so great things that we'll, we'll touch on but i guess where do you want to start what what stood out most to you from the award show yeah i mean the big headline is that netflix beats hbo in the total wins category for the first time they had been slightly more nominated a few times at this point but hbo has always been at the top but Netflix wins 44 total Emmys across all the nights, tying the single-year Emmy record set by CBS in 1974. And in the process of doing this, Netflix gets its first win for a series category. It's first two in that, Best Limited Series, Queen's Gambit, and Best Drama, The Crown. And obviously, all the millions upon millions billions really of content spend at netflix for years now they have the top prizes of the emmys have still eluded them and that that is no longer the case now whether you think netflix will continue this trend or hbo will of course rise back to its rightful place at the top uh depends how you think about it but i think that, that i think that's the biggest headline because that, that's that's new that's something different yeah i'm trying to think and uh you know i guess some and thinking about the big awards that were won by Netflix, you know, Halston, Ewan McGregor getting the, <laughs> the upset yeah. over Paul Bettany stands out. But I'm trying to think, like, I guess Queen's Gambit, obviously, is the one that stands out most there. What other shows won awards from Netflix? It's I The Crown. The Crown just won a right. shit ton of shit. The, the one <laughs> I kept missing. Yeah, so that, 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 I think that's a good question, right? Because my, my first thought was, is it that the shows this year are better? Is it that more shows with more variety are getting nominated? 
Um, but yeah, it sounds like it's just really one prestige show that's just kind of like swept everything. Yeah. Um, hmm. It's an interesting question. I'm, I lean towards probably not because I think Netflix has just been so far ahead in the content producing um, aspect of streaming and, you know, with other prestige or hopefully prestige shows on the way, such as the, uh, you know, uh, The Hobbit or The Lord of the Rings spinoff mm -hmm. from Amazon that's down the line, more Game of Thrones uh, content yeah. coming back. You expect that to be high level. I don't think it's going to corner the market the way that The Crown did this year. I don't foresee that. Do you? No. I mean, it's important to remember that there was no Better Call Saul or Euphoria or Succession in the mix this year. No Barry, no Atlanta right. on the comedy side, you know? Um, and also, just think about what Netflix does. Like, Ozark will be back. Stranger Things will be back for final seasons. And they've been nominated in top categories before. But other than that, like, Netflix is an all-things-to-all-people company when it comes to what they make. Prestige is just a certain piece of that whereas prestige is everything fx does and everything yeah. hbo does so it, it's probably just not wise to bet on it continuing for netflix just because that's not their sole game that's not their the, those aren't their goals so you know it's nice to see the crown get honored after you know a long run still ongoing you know it's impressive that it's able to turn over its ensemble cast multiple times and not mm -hmm. miss a beat you know this operates on such a high level for really everything it does and definitely uh, deserving to be the, the first best drama for Netflix. I have no problem with that. And say for best limited series for Gambit, even if it wasn't my choice in the category, we talked in our predictions episode that the category was incredibly stacked. You really couldn't go wrong with whoever did end up winning. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, Gambit had a pretty big night and, you know, I think people were happy about that. Probably the, I would say probably the show that, I, I've heard most of our friends in my, or people in my circle have watched and really enjoyed it, at least out of the, the ones that were nominated. Um, you know, some other cool wins that I just want to shout out. Michaela Cole getting a writing yeah. award, giving, I think, a really powerful... And, Had to happen. You know, yeah, really great speech. Um, Gene Smart uh, getting uh, Best Lead in a Comedy Series uh, for Hacks, which, uh, you know, long time coming for her. I think you predicted... Julianne Nicholson getting the mayor of Easttown win. Yeah, that one's funny to me because what, the way I, I talked about it last week was that do you see Netflix winning twice? Or sorry, do you see Disney and specifically Marvel winning two acting awards? Because it was favored that Catherine Hahn would win for supporting limited series and Paul Bettany would win for lead limited series. And it turns out they lost both of those categories, not just one. Because, of course, as you said, Ewan McGregor upsets Paul Bettany as well. So uh, didn't call it all the way. But, uh, you know, Mar Mar Marvel, uh, Marvel got some nominations. They showed up and they got nothing. And you know what? You know what? You know what they do get? They get a lot of people watching their shit. They make a lot of money. So don't, don't cry over any spilled milk. I don't think anyone's crying for Marvel at this point. Um, you know, in just kind of looking through here, I mean, what else stands out? Ted Lasso obviously had a big night. Um, Shout out fall effectively, Sudeikis. as we had said. Yeah. Livia Coleman, you know, uh, always delightful whenever she gets up mm. there and gets a, uh, yeah. a speech. Bit of a surprise. We kind of all assumed Emma Corrin was going to win, especially because Livia Coleman had previously lost her first time around as the queen. Uh, of course, without Zendaya in the fold, 
Coleman once again rides to the top as an awards darling, you know? Yeah. So uh, always a bit foolish to, to bet against her when, you know, when she's up, up for it. Um, you, know, you mentioned Ted Lasso. Ted Lasso winning Best Comedy Series, that means Apple wins a top prize in only its second year of operation. You know, thinking about how Apple started off with a bunch of shows top-lined by The Morning Show, I don't think anyone saw, like, grand Emmy success happening so quick. And maybe Ted Lasso is truly just a flash-in-the-pan bit of a fluke for Apple. You know, remains to be seen on that, but they got a lot of other stuff in the pipe, like uh, the big uh, sci-fi adaptation foundations about to come out, you know, so Apple... Apple's not slowing down. And if anything, this might just embolden them. Do you know what? We can spend, keep spending the money on, on content. Why not? Again, the money is no object to us. We're already finding success, you know? Hey, I don't hate it. Um, as people of this show know, big Ted Lasso fans. So keep putting more and more money into creating some good content for us. Uh, Dave, anything else that you want to touch on with the Emmys? Anything that stood out? Um, I mean, I feel like people kind of already assumed this, but it's a true changing of the guard. This is the first time all top three series prizes were all won by a streaming service. Uh, obviously, Apple, Netflix, and Netflix. I honestly thought that had happened already. I knew Netflix hadn't won it, but uh, kind of funny to see that not happen. But yeah, now with Netflix and Apple getting in the mix, they join Hulu and Amazon. So all the top streaming dogs have won uh, the top prizes already. So I think betting on who's who's next to get in that mix. Do you think a Paramount Plus original gets to the top first? Uh, that that's probably going to be fun, you know. After yeah. all, um, there were there were nominations for Quibi, in short form, you know. So, uh, but yeah, all, all the big all the big big dogs finally have won won something big. But yeah, I mean, yeah. yeah and I think the last note I have is the Emmy ratings did jump up a considerable amount past 2020, which is to be expected because I think as we've said, as many people have said, everything was down in 2020 and it was pandemic related more than anything else. Obviously, award show appetite is not what it once was, but nice to see a, a bounce back in interest in some respect. Yeah, and I think we should just note real quick, um, you know, some of the criticism of the show, mm. of the awards of the night, um, specifically the winners of all the major acting categories being right white males or females, um, you know, and this is just continues to be a issue at, you know, these award shows that uh, people of diverse backgrounds, not really getting, and diverse identities, I should say, not really getting the recognition yeah. um, that they deserve. Yeah. And in this case, it's quite, it's quite, uh, I don't know, interesting, unique, new, that it was a very diverse uh, field of nominees mm -hmm. to be in the day. A lot of the big categories ended up going to white people ended up going to performers in, in this year playing uh, British royalty, you know, something uh, tried and true when it comes down to that, you know, and Michael K. Williams, we kind of expected him to win his final chance, Lovecraft country. Again, the voting happened before he passed, but he was the favorite going in. He ends up not winning to buy his Menzies wins because it's just a juggernaut night for the crown. And, you know, like Michaela Cole not winning, at, but it's in place of Kate Winslet. It's not that Kate Winslet is uh, undeserving in any respect. It's just that, um, if anything, I think even more work needs to begin earlier in the process that we can continue to uh, see a more equitable space as possible. But uh, it's certainly better than it's been. But yeah, I mean, when no one ends up winning after all those nominees, it only goes so far.
hey, but at least Hamilton got recognized finally, right? <sighs> yeah. I mean, it could have been worse. It could have been worse. They could have had more acting wins. So, yeah. I, yeah. I think Hamilton's finally done. And I like Hamilton. We've talked about Hamilton. But I think Hamilton, as award shows, is finally done. Hamilton uh, premiered in 2015. And it's finally uh, over. <laughs> I, I'm going to let you put the dirt on Hamilton's grave. I'm not ready to, to say it's done yet. I'm sure it will pop up somehow. But uh, it's true. anyways. do a new movie or something, like a new, <laughs> new version, a new recording. Oh, God, you're right. <laughs> anyways, why don't we move on to something uh, I'm definitely a lot more excited to talk about than the Emmys, which is Injury Reserve dropping their second album by the time I get to Phoenix. And a, a, we talked about Injury Reserve's self-titled debut album back in 2019. I think the, the highlight for me, a song that I found myself listening to or coming back to quite a, a lot, is uh, Jailbreak the Tesla, um, ah. which was on our um, yeah. 2019, uh, the best of 2019 playlist on Spotify. Check Amino. Out. Yeah. And, um, you know, I'm just, I don't know what I expected when I saw that we were reviewing the Injury Reserve album. It was never this. No, and I was pleasantly surprised in the best way possible. Um, I mean, just general reaction to your li- listening of this album. Yeah, by the time I get to Phoenix, notably the first release of any kind since Injury Reserve lost one of its members, Grogs. He passed away rather abruptly and unexpectedly last year. Um, I don't believe we know really what happened, but he passed. So it's, now it's just a duo of Richie and uh, Parker and they say that this was largely recorded before uh, Grogs died and of course he's still all over the album laying down verses alongside Richie but I wasn't expecting them to really go into this experimental direction you know they've been an exciting group in hip-hop already the most accomplished rap act out of Arizona not that there's much competition there but They've been cool. They've been unique. They've been an underground act that has its own identity. But to kind of flip it on its head with this new record, just from a production standpoint, was not what I expected. And and I I, res- I think I respect it more than I want to revisit it because it, it is awfully jarring song to song. Yeah, and you know I think especially given just the overall feel of the album right it feels and just by the cover which if you're watching on youtube you can see behind me it's like this guy it's like outline of a guy shadow of a guy with like a whole red background looks like he's kind of like in the clouds or something like that with the sun over his head and it almost kind of looks apocalyptic in a sense and i think that's kind of the feel i get with this album is it just feels like some something that's grappling with existential dread as well as like self uh uncertainty or self-discovery in a not, not so great way and it's just really unsettling at points but also mm. i think i agree it's a very impressive album in terms of production but also i think just delivery on this like mm. um you know i i was trying to think of a comparable for this right and i think like death Jesus. grips or something I don't yeah know. death grips um i think there's like elements of like earl sweatshirt type production where it feels mm. kind of like slowed and chopped and kind of like you know just kind of disjointed but still very like smooth in a way 
And then also at times it felt like a hundred gex. Man, how do you how do you take all that and put it into an album? But I I, I thought it was a really impressive showing. Um, yeah, I mean, what what's it up to you most? You mentioned the production. What did you like or, or not like about it? I mean, it's just really funky, you know. I I think uh, Superman that the yeah. second song is probably my favorite example. It's just really electronic, wild. Uh, it, it's not a familiar rhythm, anything like that, you know. And Richie's vocals on top of that often come with a lot of distortion, a lot of after effects, you know, and combine that with a lot of times the vocal delivery is intentionally emotional, angry, uh, fast flow, you know, whatever it might be. Uh, combining all those things together, it's often very loud, but also it's just like really like big music, you know? And not that they haven't had big production before. I think Parker's production's always been pretty impressive for someone with no real like you know ties to any other you know hip-hop scenes or anything yeah you know, I, I think of my favorite songs of the group like oh shit and um all this money have like really like sick bass lines and like grooves and stuff but this is like i don't know if you can go jam to this the way i can just throw on all this money and be fucking hyped you know and this yeah. is obviously operating at a much higher level and you spoke to the dread and the you know the the emotion that comes out. It, it it it's weird to reconcile that Grog's made most of this album because it, it sounds like something they would make after they lost their friend, not something they would make with their friend when he was still with them. You know? Yeah. No, I, I completely agree, and uh, I think it's the sort of thing where, like, as I think about like what I think I really appreciate about this album is I think it is just the uniqueness and it is the, the fact that it, it feels like their inspiration from this comes from a place that feels very familiar to people like I was mentioning there's something that almost feels like it encapsulates the feeling a lot of people have had over the last 18 months throughout the yeah. course of the pandemic while also being something that sounds very specific and it's like this like vagueness but also specificity I can't almost I almost can't really describe it that well but it just kind of resonates in a way that i just mm -hmm. was really impressed by and like you said these songs don't aren't super accessible <laughs> like i don't think anyone who is like maybe a big little nas x fan we're going to talk about his album in a second and just kind of like a fan of pop is going to turn this on and be like oh yeah this is great they're gonna be like what the hell am i listening to you know and i think that's kind of why I appreciate it because I think when you actually sink into the songs and upon second or third listen and, and getting ready for this, I really just found myself to just find the way that they like they put all this together to be something that brought out a lot of emotion, maybe not always good emotion, and also that I just have never heard before. And I think the fact that I can't describe it is probably what I like about it. Um, does that make it good? I think it's good. <laughs> It's just, it's something new. So, I don't know, like, I guess Brockhampton also came to mind sometimes. Uh, yeah, on the album. Like iridescence, Brockhampton in particular, probably, from the production angle. Yeah, for sure. Something like Footwork in the Forest, I think, kind of brought some of those Brockhampton feels out. Um, I guess I'm trying to think, like, Top Picks for You. That reminded me a lot of, like, 808s, but just, like, with this more, like, grovelly delivery and, and vocal performance. Um I really liked post postpartum a lot. 
I thought that stood out to me as one of the tracks that maybe people can listen Mm -hmm. to and enjoy a little bit more (laughs) but I don't know man it's it was definitely something I did not expect for sure yeah I'd imagine knees is probably going to end up being more popular just because that's uh softer vocals Mm -hmm. you know you're probably easier here uh, I, really, I really like Smoke Don't Clear. I thought Richie's uh, mm. delivery. I like the energy on that. But yeah, it's something that demands being listened to again just to kind of sink in with the layers to it. You know, it's uh, it asks a lot. So it has to yeah. be something you want. I know. I was uh, When I first put it on, right? So I was like, okay, injury reserve. Left album was pretty good. Throw this on as I'm doing some work. And like, I heard outside and I was like, where the hell is this song going? And I was like, okay, I need to like tune into this more. So I stopped it and came back to it later. Um, and, you know, I think these songs have grown on me more and more. I think um, I'll be interested to see when I come back to it near the end of the year, if it's still something that hits as much for me or if it maybe doesn't have that lasting effect. So by the time I get to Phoenix, uh, check it out. Give us your thoughts below in the comments. Today, let's talk about someone who's not traditional, but more accepted in the pop sphere, Lil Nas X. And, you know, it feels like he's been around for a very long time. He's feels like he's ever present. Um, we got seven, you know, I think it was two years ago. Mm-hmm. Uh, the, the LP or the EP. And yeah, I just, uh, hearing Montero now, I'm left feeling a little bit mixed. I, I thought I was going to like this a little bit more, but I think some of the highs of it are still just like, exactly why Lil Nas X is who he is. Yeah, I agree. I'm, I'm very mixed on it. I think uh, grappling with Lil Nas X, the online personality, Lil Nas X, the celebrity, is a little different than Lil Nas X, the artist. Because his music, I don't think it's there all the time, to be blunt. You know, in the case of this album, we already heard the best stuff on the album. Mm. They were the singles, you know? So yeah. I didn't glean too much new from this full length once we got the album cuts. Is it better than the 7 EP? Yeah. But the 7 EP also has Panini, which is one of my favorite bangers of his, sure. you know. Um, and on Montero, debut album, named after his given first name. You know, I, I, I would say Lil Nas X, he... He kind of shows his weaknesses and his strengths in equal measure. Like he's not the best rapper. He's not the best singer either. Like in terms of like having like amazing vocals, but I think he sounds better when he's like trying to clean up and make like singing pop, you know, like when he's doing uh, hip hop, it's pretty basic and he's kind of carried by the production. Like take a day trip is all over this on the production side of things. Obviously producers, behind Mo Bamba and also Panini for Lil Nas X. So those beats bring it, especially like Industry Baby, one of the big singles. And I think when he can ride those beats effectively is when he's at his best. But I, I still think Lil Nas X is uh, settling in to what his sound is because lyrically on this, it's like, yeah, y'all thought I'd be gone after Old Town Road, but I'm not a one-hit wonder. I'm still here. It's like, yeah, we know. We got at this point. You're a yeah. pop star. I'm very happy for him. I love him as a celebrity. I think he's amazing. He's a great marketer. He's a online troll, but he's hilarious. You know, he handles controversy really well. All that. Yeah. 
but I still think he needs to settle in on what the music is going to be. If that'll stay his focus, and I'm sure it will be. Yeah, you know, I, I agree. I think the the best songs on here are pretty much, uh, at least for me, Montero, Industry Baby. I really like Dollar Dolla Sign Slime. I feel like he rides that pretty well, and Megan comes in with an okay verse. Mm. But then after that, I don't know. Like, <laughs> what what really stood out? I don't know. Um, and the thing is, I, I don't think there's like I I think when he tries to go to maybe some of those like more emotional places or maybe some of like the deeper content is where he's um or maybe like sadder sounding songs maybe it's not even deeper content but the sadder sounding songs is when I, I found myself tuning out or not being as interested but man he, he can really make a banger like you mentioned industry baby yeah. um panini um i mean even old town road which is you know, more toned down and obviously at this point played out <laughs> but longest running single in billboard history uh number one single in billboard history yeah. it's like you know, it's pretty obvious that he's got that star power. You mentioned the presence. You mentioned the uh, just the his celebrity, but it's it's. I was definitely left a little disappointed. You know, and you have some big features on here, at least mm. listed. You know, Elton John comes in with a piano interpolation, I guess, or a piano cut, but like it's not singing. Mm. It's a little disappointing. Doja Cat shows up for like twenty seconds does a quick verse and gets out you know and, and the songs are quick so like you know guest verse is probably going to feel shorter than usual but like miley cyrus just thrown in at the end i thought she was cyrus right. continuity baby gotta have yeah. it but it, i wasn't blown away by that and, and does he really carry the songs on his own the rest of the time i don't know like montero he definitely does right but i don't know nothing else really popped off the way i was hoping it would but the hits are huge that's the thing that hits mm-hmm. really big. Yeah. Yeah. I love Industry Baby. That's my favorite song. Again, I think the Take a Day Trip beat's fucking great. Jack really slides on it. Nice feature of his. And even the little Nas X, like the rapping is sometimes like he's doing his best, like, you know, Cardi flow a little bit there. It's not the most intricate, uh, you know, rhyme scheme or anything. But again, he rides the beat well. And everything works. Good video, of course, that he performed recently. Uh, but like Scoop, right? Like Doja Cat and Lil Nas X are two sides of the same coin. Uh, you know, started out with novelty songs, not really mm-hmm. taken seriously. And they became full-fledged pop stars. The problem is Doja Cat is just a lot more advanced at being a pop star right now. and just has a lot more undeniable hits and good yeah. songs. And Planet Her is a great album. You know, that song, the the hook, the the repetitive Scoop, it's like, it's it just so weak to me it's like this should have been such a better song because doja cat's on such a, a hot run right now you know i mean scoop the the, the hook is amigo's hook <laughs> it just right. is pretty much stolen straight yeah. from that and and he's not he's not offset so it's a, yeah we, we, we don't know how happy about it you know i saw some love for like tales of dominica and lost in the yeah. citadel didn't really do it for me too much and like lyrically on dead right now he gets into like some family issues more personal stuff and that's fine you know i'm happy to hear it too you know open up as best you can but i just think like performance wise he's still kind of just really just up and down depending on the song so uh, i was definitely let down just because i was really hoping that there would be an album cut that like i was really jazzed about and just wasn't yeah you know uh want to just 
stay quick for uh was this no lost in the citadel you mentioned sorry uh i mean he he's he's obviously trying to like find the lanes that he can really thrive in right and I, I think he knows like when it comes to just like pure pop banger he can he can really put those out but these other genres you know lost in citadels could have been off of machine gun kelly's most recent mm. album which has oh, had please. actually a lot more staying power and love than i ever expected it would so shout he out might win a grammy man crazy and you know you think about that cringy like video of him on top of the the table like playing the album for the first time like dancing around in front of all those people it's like how did he go from this to yes. winning grammys it's insane but um while dating megan I, fox yeah i think i think i could see Lil Nas X doing a little bit more of this stuff like lost in the citadel just because i think out of all the things he tried that one at least i like perked up and was like okay like he sounds like he's at least competent at this and you, couldn't you see him bringing in Willow, you know, right after her last album and doing something like that, or even Machine Gun Kelly, and they like share a song like mm-hmm. this? Like, it, I, I think I think it's it's right there for him yeah. to do an album. That's an interesting sure. thought. To my knowledge, I does he have a single guest feature that he's done? I don't know if he has. He actually has been largely self-contained to this point too, and I have no doubt that he will stick around have staying power and he'll get better as an artist because he is a pop star. There's no question about that. And, you know, he, he invites tons of the bullshit conservative outrage machine, but he fucking handles it like a boss. It's great. You know, and he gets so much unwarranted homophobia from many of his, uh, you know, alleged peers in in hip hop and, and pop, you know, and he's obviously a lot is bestowed upon him as a, you know, he's a top 10 artist on Spotify. That's openly gay. That, that, that does come with and, and he's not only openly gay like Troy Sivan is but he's much more flamboyant than the average gay celebrity is right so there's a lot bestowed upon Lil Nas X and I guess the, the, the music is only only part of it whether that's fair or not but I have no doubt that he'll uh, be rewarding to follow at the end of the day even, even even if it's just the Twitter entertaining me and a hot single here or there it's good enough for me I think he's great yeah you know I, I don't know if I would be really happy if his development down the road is making like really thoughtful, well-crafted albums. But I, I think his lane is probably going to just be making huge hits and then middling albums. And, right. you know, I think that that's fine. Like he's, he's more of a celebrity, I think, than an artist. And there's art in being just a celebrity too. So that's true. Is what it is. But let's, uh, let's move forward to Nine Perfect Strangers. Yeah. <laughs> yeah um we just talked about white lotus and not not to you know couch the conversation around this but i think it's pretty obvious that uh really bad timing for nine perfect strangers coming out i think dropping this first uh episode right near the end of white lotus run the white lotus finale of course hbo sunday the first three episodes of nine perfect strangers premiered on hulu three days later on wednesday it was uh as close as you could possibly be honestly and all those advanced reviews uh were pointing out that this is a poorly timed and a little bit familiar to the white lotus but it's not as good so that's 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 not great you know yeah well you know this had all the makings of being something good you have david e kelly obviously Mm -hmm. a very successful uh, creator and show uh, tv showrunner 
uh, most probably most notably for Big Little Lies recently. Mm. Um, and, you know, uh, based off a 2018 book, which I think was a bestseller. Yeah. Uh, you also a cast. Leanne Moriarty novel, just right. like Big Little Lies, and right. also featuring Nicole Kidman, just like Big Little Lies. It's uh, very, very familiar of this orbit of Moriarty, Kidman, and Kelly, of course, this time Hulu, not HBO. Yeah, and you know, just running down the the at least the cast, you have Michael Kidman, like you mentioned, Melissa McCarthy, Michael Shannon, uh what, Luke Evans, Bobby um, Cannavale, uh, yeah, Bobby Cannavale, May Jacinto, Samara Weaving, uh Melvin Gregg. Like it, it it's a it's a lot of people that we like in Deviant movies, no question. It's A list. Yeah. So, you know, the ingredients are here, but I think I'm trying to think of why exactly it didn't work for me. I I, I think it was just so much. <laughs> I don't know if there's a, even a better way for me to say it. The show was just a lot. And it felt like there were so many different threads, so many different things they were trying to tie together, so many different like side plots. Who am I following? Who do I have to care about? What relationships matter, which don't? And where it got to from where it started is very uh, surprising to me. And also not in a good way. So I don't know. Uh, we'll, we'll get more into it, but I guess just your initial reaction after finishing the series, Dave. Yeah, just kind of a waste of time, honestly. Like, did not find it satisfying at the end. It really just fizzles out. I think the setup is appealing enough, intriguing enough. Again, you have this talented cast. You kind of, you know, bringing them all together in this place. What's going on at this retreat? What, what's going to happen? there's some interesting threads there but it just never amounts to anything like worth investing in there's a lot of like what the fuck like narratives once you get like halfway through that it's just really frustrating honestly I, I didn't find it that entertaining by the end i just found a kind of a, a final grading and annoying so um I, you know, the fact that it came out close to White Lotus actually doesn't matter to me at all because I actually find it's a lot different than White Lotus. You know, it's like, oh, yeah. yes, it's people going to a secluded place, a retreat, Hawaii, wherever the fuck this took place in the woods. You know, it's on the surface similar, but White Lotus is more satirical and witty and matter of fact, whereas Nine Perfect Strangers is trying to be really metaphysical and like high minded. And obviously failing to do so, but like they're not actually that similar of a show once you get past like the setting and setup. Yeah, the the setup is the only real uh, comparison. I I agree. Um, and you know what I think we appreciate about White Lotus was it was a show that was entertaining for the relationships that uh, you're following and for the dynamics at play, but also for the the larger. Uh, themes that yes. the White Lotus really successfully weaved in and left you sitting with. Whereas like Nine Perfect Strangers, it feels almost kind of like it's in the world of the leftovers in a sense, but not nearly as like well-crafted. And, uh, you know, I think like the, the themes about grief and letting go and healing and finding what's really important to you, uh, things that have been explored before and, and I think some of those things hit like you know as, as much as the like whole micro dosing thing got taken to the extreme and uh you know really like 
unsettling to me in a lot of ways. I, I did find the stuff with Michael Shannon and his family, um, you know, healing from the, the death of the, the suicide of their son slash brother. Mm -hmm. I found that to be like fairly moving and like I, that, that kind of stuff, I think always uh, hits for me as long as it's done somewhat tastefully. Um, I don't know if I, I don't know how I felt about all the messages and choices that they made in terms of, you know, the son, like talking to them about it being a census act and things like that. But um, I, I think like the healing aspect of it was nice. And like, obviously seeing the family come back together was nice. Um, I also liked Bobby Cannavale and Melissa McCarthy. I thought they were like a nice story arc together. But after that, man, I don't know. Yeah. Like it felt like everything else was just kind of like there, but nothing really came of it. Right. Yeah. Like Manny Jacinto, good place. He's like barely has anything to do as his lackey of Nicole Kidman. Samara weaving Melvin Gregg. I think that there was a lot more potential with that as like superficial people trying to like find their own meaning and self-worth, but like they, they don't get a lot of like individual screen time, yeah, honestly. Sidelines. Yeah. <laughs> and I like Luke Evans. I feel like the stuff with him wanting to have a kid is introduced and then completely dropped until the very end. Mm -hmm. And he's more just doing like reporter watchdog stuff, you know? Um, and then like yeah nicole kimmon kind of starts to dominate it and not in a good way i think like obviously there's a i'd say a poor russian accent going on that's whatever to me honestly but like i was not invested in her her journey or the revelation that like you know, she lost her daughter and she's trying to get to a point where she can use this therapy on herself you know it's like that i, I don't think they did the work to set that up well enough and connected to that I did not like what was going on with Regina Hall. I just thought it was a really yeah. over-the-top performance that was not fun to be around. And, like, held the twist, you know, that she was the shooter. It's, like, felt completely flat to me, you know. So, uh, I agree. I think the Marconis, for the most part, and then also uh, McCarthy and Cannavale. Those are, like, the relationships you can invest in. But other yeah. stuff is just not given the time it needs or just not actually that interesting. Yeah, and you know, I, I, Regina Hall, as an actress, I, I like really hate to say this, but like a lot of times, I just find her like uh, her acting style and like just her like personality on screen to be a little bit like grating to me. And so, you know, then you introduce her as this character who I feel like is really like poorly written, um, and uh, it feels a bit like one note kind of like she, you know, lost her husband because Masha was having an affair with her and or with him and then she has anger issues from that and can't find a way of like coping with that and become violent and that's just kind of her character throughout the whole thing you know finding healing through masha giving that to her i, I thought was also like i thought it was actually great when she said well i can't forgive myself and then at the end she just kind of was like well i was able to forgive myself because someone else forgave me and i was like okay that i felt like you just totally like rebuffed on the point maybe maybe i missed something there um i i was not microdosing while watching this so if it's on some like other you know uh plane that i'm not aware of please let me know um but yeah i think overall just a lot of potential and really uh everything fell pretty flat you know you mentioned um manny jacinto and uh the relationship that the relationship triangle between him, Nicole Kidman, and uh, Tiffany Boone as Delilah. Um, 
just felt so unnecessary. And I guess you needed someone who was going to like step out and expose what happened at this place as, as like a way of like wrapping it up, I guess. But overall, I just felt like that was just like, what the fuck? <laughs> I, I found myself saying that a lot, like what the hell is going on? Um, but, you know, I think, I think there are still some good performances. I think if you, if you can kind of just like take it for what it is, I think this is a show that you can just like watch and be entertained by, but it's definitely not in the same plane as, you know, White Lotus or other shows that I think develop character a lot better. Yeah. Um, it was a swing, you know, I guess not really a swing. You're adapting the Moriarty novel, you know, but I don't know. I feel like I expect a little bit more from David E. Kelly. Um, you know, I, Grace Van Patten, who's the, you know, young Marconi daughter, she was new to me, kind of had an uncanny physical resemblance to Shailene Woodley in terms of uh, Big Little Lies and Kelly and Kidman and all that. I found that a little uh, uh, through the looking glass, but yeah, (laughs) and I Perfect Strangers um, just doesn't quite, uh, doesn't quite come together. It's whatever, you know, Kidman's working. She's busy. Yeah. Why don't we move on to a show I enjoyed a lot more than I'm Perfect Strangers, Sex Education Season 3. And we, I think we really, really enjoyed Season 1. You know, a huge surprise, but something that was very, like, welcome surprise a few years back. Season 2, I think we, we felt was a little bit more, like, middling, but still an enjoyable season of TV. You know, I think where this show really thrives is mixing in... Uh, you know, serious topics, representation with um, uh, humor and lightheartedness. And uh, it's really like, it walks that line really well. And season three continues that. And I think actually elevates itself a little bit. While some of the season, and especially all the stuff with um, Gemma from uh, <laughs> Girls, I'm, I'm forgetting your name all of a sudden. Uh, Jemima uh, Kirk. Who, yeah. yeah Jemima, the new, yeah. new head teacher comes to the school to uh, clean up its public image. Yeah, with some of the stuff with Jemima Kirk in this season, I was just like, this is a little too much, like, I don't know, like, bad, like evil headmaster-ish. Yeah, uh, Umbridge from Harry Potter. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, I, I still think some of the story arcs of this season are the best that the show's ever done. It was operating on a really high level. How did you feel about season three of Sex Education? Yeah, I agree. I think the, the beauty of the show is that it's put the time in to make you care about so much of its ensemble and the relationships going on in the ensemble, whether they're new ones, long existing ones, fractured ones, whatever it is, you're invested in this story. And even when it's more tropey, melodramatic love triangle stuff, you still care because you're like rooting for all these characters in one way or another. And yeah, I thought Sagittarius 3 was a great return to form. Not that two was bad, but two was not as good as one. And I think this this kind of got back to what uh, season one did, while also in keeping what was going on in season two. Like you have this wider ensemble that was really branched out in the second season, kept all that going, introduced new people on top of that. But also we kind of got back to a little bit of focusing on the sex positivity, the sex titular sex education um, that made the first season so I think effective because you had that immediate hook of like the clinic. And that structure, uh, that was that was great. You know, obviously we don't have that um, 
you know, those rules that box on the show anymore in terms of like the drama. But I still think like the narrative was able to like keep the themes that we really liked from the beginning season and kind of continue to grow the greater show the way it's been going. So it's like a natural place to continue in terms of a, a new season. But yeah, I really liked it. Yeah. You know, just my, my first reflection of the show, and I think you summed it up really well, like the fact that they've built out so many different characters um, to the point where like, you can kind of take Asa Butterfield and, um, you know, uh, Nakuni Gatwa and just kind mm-hmm. of like sideline them for full, full episodes and not even miss, like miss a beat. No. Um, it is really impressive, but the way that they've taken some of the characters who, you know, Adam, season one into season two, I mean, you start to soften on season two, but season one, you're just like, this guy's a prick, like absolute yeah. prick. And then season two starts to, or well, end of season one into season two starts to kind of uh, flesh that out more. And I think his story arc in, in this season is maybe my favorite that the show has ever done. Seeing him grapple with his identity, come to terms with him more, come to terms with like, how do you find joy? Like what makes you actually happy? And like, being okay with that being something like dog training and, and com- uh, competition was just like so rewarding and like heartfelt. I was just super impressed with how they played him out and his dad as well, who I completely disliked going into this season as someone who was very right. obviously hard and then fleshing his character out as like that generational family trauma. Just really, really impressive and some awesome moments with that. Did not see that coming, but was super grateful with that. What 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 story arcs or character development did you find most gratifying for you? Yeah, I agree about Adam for sure. Definitely didn't see it coming. It just everything about Eric and Adam's relationship, I thought, is really well done yeah. uh, the whole time. Honestly, it's uh, you know moves at a a slower pace given the kind of character Adam is, but it uh, I think it all all really works. They don't skip any steps. It's, it's great, you know, and mm-hmm. cover you know going from uh, acceptance of one's identity to uh, what position you prefer in the relationship. You know, it, it's the, the show is obviously very sex positive and very um, open and honest about all kinds of things, really. But uh, I thought that they did a great job with that. And also, you know, other side of the coin, when you have Eric going to uh, Nigeria and even the lead up to that, it's like, you know, uh, being open and gay, still uh, repressed in many parts of the world and can't yeah. forget that you know there's a lot of a lot of work to be done and how that work gets done really depends on where you are and yeah everything everything about that was great uh, i think the one the one downside to um adam's uh, dad and that storyline was you have jason isaac showing up as uh, <laughs> the brother adam's uncle and he's like barely in the show like barely a character very one note it's like why is jason isaac's playing this like i love jason isaac as an actor he's a fucking awesome in the patriot obviously yeah people know him as lucius malfoy and harry potter among other things but like kind of wasted him you know in terms of a british actor i wish you could have saved him for a meteor uh male adult part in season four or something you know i wonder if there will be though you know especially because it seems like uh alistair uh petrie as mr groff is getting a little bit more uh run in the show and, and fleshed out i wonder if there's going to be some sort of reckoning between him and Jason Isaacs down the line. You, you can only hope because like, like you Please. said, you don't want to lose a talent like Jason Isaacs just for a bit role like that. Um, so what else did you like outside of uh, Adam yeah. and Eric and 
I I loved Isaac and Maeve. I thought that was handled with the utmost care, the utmost grace. That was fantastic. You know, again, they don't skip any steps at all, but focusing on like, like what, what, what is good in a relationship for Isaac, someone in his condition, yeah. obviously, uh, you know, in a wheelchair. That, that was, that was awesome. And, you know, I mean, obviously long loved the Maeve character because of, just Emma Mackey's performance talking about the, oh, the, the revelation of season one in terms of just a really expressive talent, you know, and season two largely sidelined Maeve. She's not interacting with much of the ensemble given where her character's, uh, what her character's up to. And in this case, she's still kind of on the side, but I like how they brought her back in. And I didn't mind the eventual love triangle that resurfaced between Otis, uh, Isaac, and Maeve, because I think they, they really do a good job to make you sympathize and like Isaac and of course you already like Maeve so I really like that stuff yeah you know Isaac is a character that I'm like lukewarm on I for some reason just have not really grown to love in the show um but I do think by the end of the season I, I he was growing on me more um you know who grew on me a lot this season though was Mimi Keene as Ruby Matthews um you know yes Otis's love interest being didn't see that coming right all the Ruby me stuff either and not only I did like her character grow on me. Um, you know, I, I think especially when she brings Otis home to meet her dad and then like everything that comes about after that and how that really like builds out, you know, kind of like why she's built some of the defense mechanisms she has. Um, but I think just in general, every time she was on the screen and really like at the center of a scene, she absolutely stole it. And she was completely magnetic and, uh, you know, there's a lot of talent on this show, um, but Mimi Keen definitely stood out to me as someone that feels like she's she could be on the radar for uh, for better things to come for sure. Um, you know, I, I wanted to ask, how did you feel about all the stuff with the adults? You know, obviously you have Jillian Anderson, um, and I, I thought she's with her typical fantastic self, but she I feel like her development. And her character was really at the at the center of the story rather than on the outside as support to Otis and his story. How did you feel about everything with her? Yeah, I mean, obviously, I'd like more focused on the kids just because I'm more interested in their characters. But she's so important to the story, given her role as you know a sex therapist and how she affects Otis and um, not always you know living with them and everything. It makes sense. Um, and Anderson, obviously elevates all the scenes she's in always really good but yeah i mean maybe it's a little like long in the tooth the, the pregnancy stuff right and like the the relationship with his dad you know it's like maybe it's spinning its wheels just a tad i don't know you know like i feel like yeah. there's more there's more like growth in like the arcs and the relationships of a lot more of the kids whereas yeah. anderson's you know uh what's her name uh Jen? Jean. Jean. Jean's just kind of like, you know, on the hamster wheel until she gives birth. Yeah. Uh, I am interested to see who the real father is, because that seems to be the, the cliffhanger of, you know, at the end of the season as she opens up the DNA test. Um, so uh, that, that'll be a fun storyline, I'm sure, for the next season. Um, just want to shout out a couple more things from the season, right? Uh, I thought uh, Lily, played by Tanya Reynolds, 
really grew on me this season and especially like where that ended up with her releasing her story the uh how that was kind of a plot mover for her uh um for the story but also like the all the kids coming together to really protest against the uh the jemima kirk um implemented mm-hmm. uh, rules of the school um ola kind of being in support of lily was sidelined i felt a little bit but you know you can't give everybody a ton of show on this i felt the same kind of with jackson although jackson and um oh man what was the character no um, I thought that was a really interesting um, exploration. I thought really well done. Um, I, I would like to, I, I probably should have read a little bit about um, how the transgender community feels about the way that um, like transgender identity is represented in the story. But from everything I saw, I felt like it was really tastefully and thoughtfully done. Yeah, yeah. I mean, bringing up like, like non-binary yep. identity and how that affects the often routine and traditional uh, divisions and classifications that happen in a school, whether it's due to conservatism, traditionalism, or due to logistics, whatever it might be, you know, um, uh, Jemima Kirk kind of nods to both sides. You know, I think they do a good job of not having her tilt her hand too much on how she feels about things. She's always trying to like bring it back to bettering the school and like education research and all that shit, right? Even even as it obviously gets too too far and uh, you know uh, absurd by the end, but yeah, I th- I think that was, that was a nice addition. I, now, did, did I see like uh, Jackson kind of being the the vehicle to introduce that kind of story? Not necessarily. I guess they kind of need something for Jackson to do on this, given that like the swimming stuff has been dropped and all that. But um, I, I think I like that, and that's probably one, one of the better ongoing conflicts that you get when you have this new head teacher character that obviously is really effective at bringing in all this new conflict that can simmer and exist throughout the progression of the season yeah um you know we could probably go on for a long time talking about this show and it's all good stuff i think um you know in, in contrast to nine perfect strangers a lot of threads here that all feel like they're tailored together really really well um so definitely uh enjoyed this a lot more just really quickly what were like your favorite episodes yeah i really like the beginning i I do think everything to set up with uh otis and ruby is really good like you mentioned uh when you go to ruby's house meet her dad thought that was really great um yeah and like because like then then the build-up right where uh, Otis doesn't say I love you back it's like I was like oh fuck you know I was, I was actually rooting for them and you wouldn't think he'd be rooting for them given where we started in season one it just speaks to the how much work the show does to get you to invest in the ensemble and how it really builds up his relationships um, so yeah I, I think I think the early going is, is really effective once once we get later on like I was like the, the the school trip is fun um, but the Anderson pregnancy relationship stuff as we said kind of starts to wane or get a little old so i think i think i think the, the beginning's really great yeah yeah i think the beginning's really great um i, I do like when they do the uh i don't know the assembly to kind of get back at jemima kirk and 
get her fired. I thought that whole penultimate episode was just really, really strong, you know, ending in the um, Otis and Maeve moment. Um, Otis and Maeve are feeling a little bit like they're on the normal people path. You know, the timing's just never right. Um, mm. Kind of weaving in and out, which is a little bit frustrating. I kind of wanted to see them, like, get get together. Um, I'm not as interested in their relationship, I think, as I am in some of the other storylines of the show. Right. Um, yeah. But... Yeah, I, I think that that might just speak to they've done a really good job of establishing Otis and Maeve on their own as, as characters that have relationships with other people and whether it's platonic or romantic, you know. So I like that those two characters aren't completely defined by the will they or won't they that obviously will come back around by, we assume, season four. Probably the last season, I'd have to imagine. They've been in, um, what's the term? Uh, uh sixth term uh fuck whatever the uh senior senior year yeah yeah whatever the english schooling term is for the end of secondary school they've been in that that term the whole time i know it's a two-year uh term in england so four seasons for this uh two-year term i feel like we've kind of reached the reached the end so i'd imagine we'll announce a fourth and final season yeah and also i think all of these like this ensemble cast of young people are just going to start getting more and more roles and getting them together is probably going to be hard. So I think that's probably a good call. Um, yeah, leave us your thoughts. It's, um, oh, sorry, it, it's called Sixth Form uh, for sixth the, form. the end of secondary school in England. Sorry. Um, so leave us your thoughts on if you liked or didn't like Sex Education Season 3. I've seen mostly positive reviews for it. Uh, Dave, I've had, I have a less positive review of Clint Eastwood's new movie, uh, Cry Macho. This is his last one, right? He doesn't have anything announced uh, coming up. Obviously, he's been very active despite now being 91. This is the 25th movie he's starred and directed in. He's been directing films for over 50 years. Um, In the case of Cry Macho, he initially thought about adapting the book back in 1988, but he thought at the age of 58, he was too young to effectively play the part. So the fact that he came back around and pulled this off, I imagine he was 90 or 89 when he made this, you know, pretty, pretty impressive, kind of a flex. But yeah, this is the latest entry in his now storied directing career uh, at Warner Brothers. Obviously, this movie is also available on HBO Max. And, you know, we've talked about a lot of Clint Eastwood stuff lately because he's been active, you know. I really like The Mule. We talked about Richard Jewell. You know, he's he's been out there. Um and I, it's kind of notable. Is his last movie? He does look older than he did in the Mule, and the Mule's not that old, you know. So Clint, Clint, Clint's perhaps getting to the end of the line as a as a star, you know. Um, is is this his old man the gun? The way Robert Redford, you know, right. set off into the sunset. I'm not sure because it just seems like he just likes to work and likes to kind of meditate on his own, you know, career. The way he picks roles these days. Yeah, you know, I think there's just something about the movie that feels a bit like uh, final <laughs> on a roll kind of thing. It's, uh, you know, you think about Clint Eastwood, you obviously think about um, like the old westerns and this guy who just felt invincible, you know, uh, larger than life in a lot of ways. I mean, you say Clint Eastwood and I think people just immediately think movie star. Um, and he looks really frail in this movie. And that's, I think, probably partially the role. Um, but also, like you said, he's, he's probably 89 or 90 when filming on this raft. 
uh, I believe you said he's 91 now. He is not a young man. And um, I got to be honest, I didn't really enjoy this movie very much. Um, I, I think it's well shot. I think the story is pretty interesting. I, I got to say, I thought the acting performance, especially from um, Eduardo Manet playing uh, Rafo, was kind of tough at points. And I also just think certain aspects of the movie just didn't really work so well for me. So I, I wasn't a huge fan, but um, I give a lot of credit to Clint, uh, like you said, coming back around on this and, uh, you know, keep working if that's what he wants to do. What did you think of the movie? Yeah, I think it's all right. You know, um, it moves a little slow for a movie that's not also that long. It's like an hour 40 or whatever. Um, I think, you know, I think it's interesting as just a, a greater piece of meta stuff, right? For, for again, Clint playing these, obviously by design, <laughs> older characters, but like they're, all, they're often like people like at the end of the roads, long careers. And it, it's like a, always like a really refinement of like the classic Clint Eastwood role. It's not like he's picking something random. You know, he's always doing something that feels very much like a Clint role and a Clint old late career role, you know? So mm-hmm. I get that. I think that's cool. Obviously, the movie's quality is up and down, depending on what it is. And again, he makes so much movies that inevitably there will be some ups and downs. But yeah, I, I think it's just a bit more predictable than I expected. And Clint doesn't have the even light action chops to kind of spice up a lot of this stuff. So it's really going to all be dialogue, you know? Like we show him getting like he's he's getting on the horse, but like there's a lot of like quick cutting and stuff. You can tell that like it's Clint can stand on a horse. He probably can't ride a horse anymore, you know. So yeah. you know, I, I think it's okay. Um, but it, it you know it also doesn't have like grand ambition, right? Like it's a kind of a simple story at the end of the day. Yeah, it's a small terms, story sure. in terms of like you know coming to terms with what what is like you know masculinity what is being macho mean all that so i i don't i don't think it's you know high, trying to be high mind or anything it, it's 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 what it's fine yeah yeah i you know i think it, right from the get-go you know it starts off clint eastwood uh and dwight yoakam having this mm. conversation i thought just the acting in this scene was really bad um especially on yoakam's part you know it, it kind of maybe it was the editing of it but the conversation kind of cuts from, you know, him being like, you're washed up, uh, Mike, you know, you're, you're a piece of shit now, you know, you're not doing anything with your life, what do you, get out of here, and Mike's like, okay, and then Dwight Yoakam's like, but I need you to go get my son, and I'm like, what the hell is, like, going on here, I, and I just really thought it was, like, really wooden, and just, like, not that impressive, and then, you know, Eduardo Mine, like I mentioned, he's, he's a kid, so, uh, and it seems like he probably he might have been uh, I don't know maybe like out of his uh, like uh, out of his depth on this uh, you know acting alongside you know a legend like Clint Eastwood probably a very intimidating thing to do but I really felt like he was very um, uh, I don't know uh, unconvincing in the role mm-hmm. and just like uh, especially for someone who's lived with a mother who seems you know quite emotionally and mentally abusive and as well as physically abusive living on the street kind of living off cockfighting um 
seems just like super chipper and like kind of like okay to do whatever and I just don't feel like he hit the emotional depth of uh, someone who's been through that sort of pain at least that's not what came across to me uh, did you feel like did you get that same sense in the performances or did you like them yeah no I agree you know it's I don't know if he was that convincing as someone who's supposed to be hard street bound kid you know growing up in a rough circumstance I don't know it's, it's ours whatever how'd you feel about the romance though that seems to always accompany a Clint Eastwood movie Dude. no matter the uh age of Mr. Eastwood Dude. <laughs> it, that, that was really tough for me um the fact that this like 90 year old man is like being lusted after by uh I don't I don't they don't remember the actress's name um it was just really uh, like surprising, but also just like I, unbelievable to me. Like, there's no way that that woman would be like interested in a relationship with someone who's kind of that frail. I would imagine. I mean, it's a, it's a, a just very hard for me to imagine. I think, and it just felt like there was an like it could have been a. I think it could have been a really nice thing if it was like him finding community him finding support without it having to turn romantic but of course it had to turn romantic and that's was just not a good call for me it seems like you didn't like that part either Nah, i mean it's just kind of distracting especially the early stuff it's like like uh rafa's mom is like giving him all this shit and then next thing you know she's kind of like hitting on him and i don't know kind of like weakened the I don't know. I guess that they were doing it to were they doing it to show like her instability? I, I don't really know, you know. Yeah. And if we kind of cut that out, and this was truly just like an on the road movie between a a man and a young man, I think it could have been a lot stronger. But yeah. I mean, I'm, I'm not too mad about it. It's it's whatever. Yeah. The part of the movie I think I liked the most was when they're kind of like hiding out of that church, and mm. you know they're kind of like he's helping out with the animals and uh rafo is learning how to like ride a horse and making friends meeting girls like that part was probably the best part to me because i felt like it really hit home i think what the uh, second theme beyond you know how machismo culture and macho culture is kind of overrated and unnecessary but the idea of like community being where you find healing and where you find a sense of belonging um you know both rafo and mike are these very lonely people when they meet each other and when they start to come around as characters is when they're you know uh involved in something bigger than them and, and helping others and i think that that was by far the most effective part of the movie for me the rest of the like on the run stuff i never really found to be too like tense or upsetting i think maybe the scene between mike and um uh, Rafa's mom where she's like sort of seducing him I don't know what the intention was there but uh, I thought that scene was like probably the most tense anything with uh, Rafa's mom and uh, Mike I found to be pretty good but yeah the rest of the movie just not really impressive for me tough a tough watch for me but you know it like we said we give credit to Clint sounds like you liked it a little more than I did any last thoughts on it no I mean Make another one. Why not? I mean, 
I think I mean thinking about like when Unforgiven comes out in what ninety one or ninety two, whenever it was. Gene Hackman is approaching the end of his career, and by the early two thousands, he completely checks out and truly leaves. And Clint Eastwood just has had no interest in doing that. You know, he's 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 around. So you know yeah. what? Stay around, man. Do do you think? Uh, uh, I hope so. I hope I was wrong on this being his last movie. Um, Dave, we're we're gonna do another nostalgia ranks next week. We're talking Kanye, so this one's gonna be long it's going to be in-depth uh go listen to the albums now you make yourself familiar because we're doing the best kanye albums worse it's a worse the best but then in two weeks what does everybody have to be uh tuning into yeah very exciting star wars visions talking about that disney plus non-canon star wars anime project a bunch of uh separate anthology shorts very exciting uh we'll also get to the eyes of tammy faye which is out now. Uh, Dear Evan Hansen, the film version, is yeah. coming out. Uh, we'll see about that one. Um, ben Platt looking real old. Ben Platt definitely still looks 18. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, new, a lot of new music. Joey Perp, Wesley Carr, Hedy One. Venom 2 is coming out. We got, we got, we got plenty of stuff. October is going to be very busy. But looking happy about forward that. to it. Uh, also excited that the uh, I've seen a lot of positives of uh, the early viewings in Dune. So fuck yeah, really, and it's doing well at the box office internationally so far, which is great and no small feat for sci-fi that's not you know Star Wars. Can't wait! So uh, hit that subscribe if you're on YouTube.com/slash/NostalgiaPod, SoundCloud.com/slash/NostalgiaPod, and to check out Injury Reserve, Lil Nas X, and all the other music that we like this year. Nostalgia Best of 2021 on Spotify. Catch you.